Good day, Crime Talk aficionados. It is February 26th, and we have a great show for you today. First, the prosecutors in the Richard Allen case say there's nothing to worry about those lost recordings. And what is going on in Idaho with the Chad Daybell indictment? I'll explain. The Jennifer Traconis trial has closing arguments tomorrow morning. We'll bring it to you. And a judge was removed for not following the law. I wish this would happen more often. And a Colorado mom on the run makes a court appearance in England. And this couple should never, ever be around children again. And then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Hi, lawyer. Lawyer. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and make sure you hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. And if you would like to leave a review, that would be great. And you know, you can tell them how handsome I am, I guess, even if you don't like what I have to say. I'm just kidding on that, of course. All right. All right. Before we get to the docket, I want to explain why I didn't have um, two shows last week. My apologies uh, for that. Uh, as you may recall, we did three shows from North Carolina. I was out there for work and we were able to uh, get everything done. Was it three shows or two, Frank? Uh, I think it was two. Yeah, I think we did two. two All right. Yeah. As you may recall, I was in North Carolina, Charlotte, to be exact, for a uh, federal case, uh, wrapping that up. And then, of course, had to come back. Then I went straight into a rather contested sentencing in a uh, federal matter. And unfortunately, you don't like it when you make the news, when you lose, and your client gets hit with a 30-year sentence. Ouch, that hurt. And then Friday as well, um, I had another sentencing on a uh, racketeering case for a bunch of, um, well, alleged racketeers uh, as related to uh, shooting up people's homes and things of that nature. So that took uh, most of my time. And just frankly, by the time we got done, um, I wasn't able to get to the studio to do a show. And obviously, I needed to spend my time preparing. Although, sometimes you, you think, why did I spend all that time preparing? Because nobody was listening to what I had to say. Anyway, I know they were listening. They just having to do their jobs. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to the docket. First, Richard Allen. That's right, the Delphi case. So the prosecuting attorney uh, handling this case is a guy by the name of Nicholas McClellan. And he responded to Richard Allen's defense team by saying that a pair of interviews conducted in the early days after the Delphi murders, which were accidentally recorded over at the police station, were not evidence at all related to this particular case. So a few weeks ago, as you may recall, Richard Allen's attorneys filed a motion to dismiss the murder charges um, against their client on the grounds of the destruction of this evidence probably not going to carry the day, but it certainly makes the police not look competent. Anyway, as you may recall, Mr. Allen is charged with two counts of murder as it relates to the deaths of Libby German and Abby Williams near the Monon High Bridge near Delphi, Indiana, back in February of 2017. So Allen's attorneys claimed in early February that the police interviews conducted 
with two men in the days following the discovery of the teenage girls' bodies were significant to their alternate theory that the girls' deaths were part of the ritualistic killing that ties to Odinism. However, it's alleged that the raw footage of these interviews doesn't exist. Only some documents summarizing the interviews with the two men who the attorneys, Rossi and Baldwin, call key suspects. Now, McClellan confirms that these interviews were in fact destroyed inadvertently, accidentally. Oh, oh, so we we just fat fingered and hit that hit that uh, delete button. It happens all the time, and I'll explain more. Um, and so, according to the uh, prosecutor, a DVR error caused the device to continually record for an unknown number of days, recording over all the existing footage already on that particular device. All the interviews conducted in the Delphi Police Investigation Room prior to February 20th, 2017, were lost due to this error. The district attorney reports, therefore, it's all okay. They were not destroyed by the state purposely or in bad faith, Mr. McClellan writes in his response. And while recordings of the raw interviews no longer exist, hey, it shouldn't be a problem because the uh, attempt to have the uh, charges thrown out uh, because of this destroyed evidence um, are not even really evidence related to this case. The evidence in question is not exculpatory, which means it helps the defendant. Otherwise, it would be inculpatory. It inculpates them for liability as to the crime. And they say that it is um, uh, potentially, not even potentially useful evidence. Now, the prosecutor stated that the interviews with the two men in, instead is just the defense's team attempt to prop up their wild theory of their case and has no evidentiary support whatsoever. Now, the theory is uh, in question is uh, Rossi and Baldwin, the attorneys, previously claimed that Allen wasn't responsible for the death of these two young girls and best friends who went for a walk on this historic Delphi Trail only to be killed. Now, Mr. Rossi and Baldwin instead have presented a conspiracy theory of a ritualistic murder seeped in the occult. But this theory has been shot down by McClellan before uh, as being unfounded and with absolutely no proof. Now, while footage of these interviews no longer exists, they're summarized. And guess what? The defense can go and uh, interview these guys. So what's the big deal? Now, the defense is obviously saying, hey, we don't know exactly what was in those interviews uh, because... You know, this could aid in our defense, but they've destroyed the evidence. And, um, of course, the prosecutor says, well, that's just mere speculation. But how do you know what you don't know? Because you weren't there and it wasn't recorded. Let me just tell you, generally, ladies and gentlemen, a video interview can be done. It can be five hours long. It'll be summarized. And I swear you have to go through everything. And thank God there's good technology now. You can upload it all and get a pretty good transcript of uh, documents these days, but the detectives never summarize it fully and completely. And in their summary, they usually leave out all the good stuff for the defendant, just based upon my years of experience, ladies and gentlemen. And so that's why the uh, defense is obviously a little skeptical of the state's claim. Now, let's talk about this really quick, okay? I'm really starting to dislike this prosecutor in the Delphi case quite a bit. I don't like how he says, oh, the defense theory is completely irrational and dismissive. It's kind of like what the uh, 
district attorney said in arguments a couple of weeks ago where it said uh, the defense attorney, and moi, um, wasn't sure if it was my complete misunderstand or ignorance of the law. Let me state this. I'm getting more and more tired of the district attorney in the Delphi case, Mr. McClellan. His repeated attacks against the prosecutors, it's just weird and it's personal, okay? And I've had cases like this. I had a case just two weeks ago where I was in court. We're making an argument. We've got a trial coming up. And the defense, or I'm sorry, and the prosecuting attorney comes out and says some bizarre stuff that, well, this must be the defense counsel's complete ignorance of the law. I look over, like, okay, really? And the judge kind of looks at her as well. Like, that's not very professional conduct, but, you know, whatever. And, of course, I get up and I say, you know, I think their, argument, their position was I was completely ignorant of the law, but I've been right, okay? I've been right, and that's why every judge has reversed their previous opinions in this particular case, right? Um, so when the, the uh, prosecutors start throwing jabs personally at the prosecutor, then that is a problem for the prosecution. It shows that they have troubles and they don't like what the defense is saying. Just my opinion. Take it for whatever it's worth. Now, do I think that this um, issue will be resolved in the favor of Richard Allen? No, because Judge Francis C. Gull uh, denies everything that the defense asked for in this particular case. And it really comes back to a federal case, uh, United States Supreme Court case, as it relates to the destruction of evidence. I know you may say, oh my gosh, this is such a unique thing. No, this kind of stuff happens quite routinely. And uh, frankly, a case that I was just talking about, what a, co what a coincidence. All the exculpatory interviews just happen to be accidentally erased. Swear to God, happens all the time. But don't worry, we got a summary. Don't worry about it. I don't want the summary. I want the video that they destroyed. And of course, there's no sanction because, well, they, they testified that it was not a problem and it was unintentional and it was just an accident. So therefore, no bad faith. Okay, so where does this come from? The law. It's called, it's in regards to a case, California v. Trombetta. And it stands for the general proposition that the state's duty to preserve evidence obtained by law enforcement officers during the investigatory stage of a case of an accused use at trial in defense of a criminal charge. Like I said, that's California Trombetta. The Supreme Court in that case considered the scope of that duty under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and determined that it must be limited to evidence that might be expected to play a significant role in the suspect's defense. And to satisfy that test, the constitutionality materiality as it relates to the evidence must both possess an exculpatory value that was apparent before the evidence was destroyed and be of such a nature that the defendant would be unable to obtain comparable evidence by other reasonably available means, right? So that's why the defense is going to lose. Prosecution's already said, ah, oh, it, was, it was insignificant, no big deal. Sure, it may go directly to the defense's theory, but we don't think it's relevant. And then, oh, it was really just an accident, no bad faith. So these Trombetta motions, and usually the states have a similar case for, for the same proposition because it happens all the time. Okay, it really does. Prosecutors mess this stuff. Def 
police officers mess this stuff up all the time. And it's always the, the good stuff. I don't know what it is. The good stuff for the defense that gets erased accidentally all the time. I, it's crazy. But that's okay. The prosecution always gets their way. And that's just the way it is. So, so deal with it, everybody. It's not due process issues. Don't worry about it. All right. Next, speaking of some weirdness, what the heck is going on with the indictment as it relates to Chad Daybell? So as you may recall, we've talked about this before, but jury selection for the trial of the people versus the state of Chad Daybell is scheduled to begin in April, is scheduled to begin on April 1st in Ada County in Idaho. Now, questionnaires will be mailed to potential jurors ahead of time, and the jury selection is estimated, or at least the court is planning on taking at least two weeks. And guess what? The trial is expected to last up to eight weeks. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the case, Chad Daybell faces the death penalty. So if the jury finds him guilty, the jury would then go and the prosecutors would then have to present the penalty phase and the defense would then present their mitigation phase um, after the verdict is announced, if in fact he's found guilty of the uh, offenses that would carry the death penalty. And then obviously the jury would decide whether he deserves to live or to die. So that's it. But here's what I want to talk to you about. There was a hearing last week or the week before last. I, I got so busy. I think it was almost two weeks ago now. And there was something that took place almost very casually um, as it related to some pretrial matters. And the prosecution moved to amend the indictment. And of course, amendment to the indictment just puts the hair on the back of my neck, makes it stand up. Because you don't amend an indictment. Okay, now I, you may say, Scott, but they do it in Idaho. Okay, Idaho is, I think, the only place, okay? Anywhere else in the world, federal court, any state court I've ever practiced in, when an indictment is handed down, it is set in stone. If you want to change anything, you need to go back to the grand jury, represent the evidence that supported the charge, and then why you're making the amendment. Hence, the term superseding indictment. That's just the way it is. That's the way it's always done. Apparently, Idaho has this little unbeknownst rule to just about anybody else in the world that you can amend the indictment. Now, let's just say, for example, it is a minor change. Let's say the address is 1234 and it should be 1233. Okay, I could probably say, Judge, that's where something took place, but it doesn't go to the overall jurisdiction. I get it. We can make a pen change. I get it. I can, I can live with that. But as you may recall, in the Lori Ballow trial, the prosecution, right before they ended their case, decided to amend the indictment, and it was a substantive change. Now, normally, when you proceed on a, a summons or a criminal complaint and information, prosecutors can amend the charge. But we're talking minor amendments, not whole charges. And so that's what they did in the Lori Vallow case. And I still think that's probably one of the better arguments that she has on appeal. Not that I'm rooting for Lori Vallow, I'm just giving you my analysis. I think that's a huge uh, or a significant appellate issue. So when I heard last week that the prosecution said, yes, we have an amended indictment, I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I should go take a look and see what the amendment was so that I can explain it 
to all you crime talk aficionados. And so the first thing I noticed is the initial indictment was uh, May 25th of 2021, and it was handed down. All right. And then it shows that there's a true bill. And as you can see, it's got the uh, deputy presiding grand juror, and it's dated May 24th of 2021, a true bill. That's an indictment. Okay. Then we go to the um, amended indictment. It's a different font, uh, but I printed out. But if you look at the uh, true bill signature, they cut and paste the true bill indictment signature. This grand jury that may not even be convened anymore, they cut and paste from the original indictment to the amended indictment. They cut and paste the signature. The date presented in open court the 24th day of May, 2021. Apparently, through the powers of Adobe, uh, this amended indictment was presented in open court the 24th day of May, 2021. Whoa, right? But I, I recall Mr. Pryor didn't object to that amendment. So then I thought, well, you know, being the uh, good, true crime podcast host that I am, I am going to try and figure out what exactly was the change. And so I started going through it. And of course, it doesn't line up because the page fonts are the, the font is a little different. So I had to actually go through and read it and compare it. And so it isn't until we get to count three. Uh, that there is any significance. Count three is the conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree, uh, grand theft by deception, a felony. The original indictment says it was in violations of the uh, Idaho Code, section 18-1701, 18-4003A, 18-24031, and then 18-2403, the original one is 4A paragraph, and the other one is 2A. We'll talk about that in a second. And then a violation of 18-2407, subparagraph I, subparagraph B, subparagraph 3. So let's take a look at 18-2403, all right? You may say, oh, Scott, what's the big deal? Well, it matters if you know your client is on charge for a particular case. So the Idaho statute 18-24034A, which was originally charged, this is the theft statute. That one reads, a person commits theft when he knowingly receives, retains, conceals, obtains control over, possesses, or disposes of stolen property, knowing that the property to have been stolen or under such circumstances would reasonably induce him to believe that the property was stolen and, under paragraph A, intends to deprive the owner permanently of the use or benefit of the value. Now, remember, the prosecution then amended that to go to subparagraph 2A. Theft includes a wrongful taking, obtaining, withholding, or another properties with the intent prescribed in subsection 1 of this section committed in any of the following ways. Paragraph A, by deception obtains or exerts control over property of the owner. Hmm. Okay. Think, what's the big deal, Scott? It's theft is theft. Well, it makes a big deal because this indictment was handed down in 2021. We're going to be literally 
at four years, almost four years from the time this trial starts to when it uh, was indicted. And the prosecutors just got around to this. And I said in the Lori Vallow trial, gee, I wonder when they're going to amend, go back and supersede the indictment as it relates to uh, Vallow uh, or as it relates to Chad DeBell because of the amendments. Didn't do it. Then we go um, back to count five. Uh, in the original count five, it alleges that the defendant, Chad Di- Chad Guy DeBell, Lori Noreen Vallow, and Alex Cox, deceased, on or about October 1st, 2018, through January 15th, in the county of Fremont, state of Idaho, and elsewhere, including Madison County, and continuing a continuing action and common scheme in Fremont counties, Idaho did willfully and knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree to commit the murder in the first degree of Tamara Tammy DeBell, and they did combine or conspire to commit murder and one or such persons did an act to affect the objects of the combination of the conspiracy. In this amended indictment, instead of October 1st, the date is now changed to October 26, 2018. Just things of note. Then we go to count six. Originally, count six, first degree murder in violation of Idaho Code 18-4001, 18-204, and uh, 18-4003A. Well, now in the amended indictment, the one where they cut and paste, never seen anything like that before. I'm, and I'm not saying that I know all the little nuances of Idaho procedure, but from an outsider, that looks a little hinky to me. Not really sure why they're allowed to do that and why would Mr. Pryor agree so easily? Maybe figure it doesn't matter. Your client's on death row why waive that appellate issue, or could be on death row, excuse me. Um, so in count six, it's 18-4001, and then they added 18-4002. Um, and that is the um, 18-4002 is the statute that is expressed and implied malice. Um, such malice may be expressed or implied. It is the... Ex- it is expressed when there is manifested a deliberate intention unlawfully to take away the life of a fellow creature. It is implied when no considerable provocation appears or when the circumstances attending the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. Easy for me to say. All right. Um, so that's they added the malice, which they kind of really needed that for the whole murder stuff. Um, So they also added 18-4004. And that is basically the punishment. And that's the statute that they have to basically abide by if there is a capital offense and they choose the uh, death penalty and imprisonment of uh, the death sentence. Curious, three weeks before trial, maybe a month, five weeks, I guess, technically. Um, we add the uh, language for the actual death penalty. Now, it does state that uh, subject to the provisions of this subsection, Idaho Code, every person guilty of murder in the first degree shall be punished by death or by imprisonment for life, provided that a sentence of death shall not be imposed unless the prosecuting attorney filed written notice of intent to seek the death penalty as required under the provisions of 18-4004A of the Idaho Code, and the court shall impose a sentence. So once again, just curious, you finally get around to all your paperwork issues five weeks before uh, trial. 
little odd to me, and the way they went about it, even more bizarre to me. Like I said, I'm not criticizing. I am just, well, maybe I am criticizing just a little bit. Um, why you don't have your ducks in a row? Procedurally, hey, someone from Idaho is going to have to explain this one to me. Because like I said, in a super, if you read the word, there's no amended indictment. You have a superseding indictment. And if you look up the definition of superseding, it means to replace what it superseded. Just saying, ladies and gentlemen. Just, I'm just a simple little lawyer here trying to comment on some issues that just kind of jump out at me. Not sure why Mr. Pryor would go along with that matter, but hey, he does what he does and I'll do what I do. And obviously we will be bringing you that trial live. And since, hey, I did make it to Lori Vallow's trial, I'm gonna do my best to make it to Chad Daybill's trial as well. Next on the docket, yes, the Traconis, Michelle Traconis. Closing arguments in the Michelle Traconis trial is set to begin Tuesday morning, and the jury could start their deliberations as well. The prosecuting and defense attorneys were meeting today to uh, do what they call a jury charging instruction conference, which is make sure that the correct jury instructions based upon the evidence presented is properly given to the jurors. One of the reasons why cases come back very often, it's juror instructions that screw up the case. Now, now this case obviously centers around uh, what happened to Jennifer Dulos, the mother of five who had been missing since May of 2019 and is presumed dead. She vanished after dropping her children off at school on that morning, and the police believe that uh, Jennifer's estranged husband, Photos Dulos, attacked and killed her at their home in New Canaan, Connecticut. Now, Photos Dulos died in um, 2020, January of 2020, by suicide after he was charged with murdering his wife. And he denied those allegations, and he can deny them all at once. But he's dead. But it certainly, you know, will give him the presumption of innocence because he was never convicted. Uh, but it sure makes you look really guilty, just saying. Anyway, at the time of his disappearance, uh, they were uh, battling, the parents were battling over a, uh, the children in a, a uh, nasty divorce proceeding. Ms. Traconis was dating Photos Dulos and living with him in uh, Farmington, Connecticut after Jennifer Dulos and the children um, moved out. Now, she has been charged with conspiracy to commit murder, hindering prosecution, two counts of tampering with physical evidence, and two counts of conspiracy to commit tampering of physical evidence. She's obviously denied those allegations. That's why they are having a trial. Now, Ms. Traconis did not testify uh, at her own trial, uh, but they did, the defense did call uh, some witnesses. Uh, one lady, uh, there were some memory experts, there were some uh, witnesses to talk about uh, basically what a good person Miss um, uh, uh, Traconis was and um, kept it kind of simple. I'll be honest with you, I haven't been able to watch that much of the last week or so of uh, the Traconis trial just because I was so busy. But we took a random poll here at the office of people that had been watching it and they said that She's got a shot, so we'll have to wait and see. Join us tomorrow morning for the uh, closing arguments in the Traconis uh, case. And um, after you watch it, let us know whether you think you'd convict or find her innocent. Next on the docket, a judge removed for not following the law. That's right. Now, we brought you this story a couple years ago when it happened, but an Illinois judge who uh, drew some criticism for reversing a man's rape conviction in 2022 
is now being removed from the bench. The Illinois Courts Commission removed Adams County Judge Robert Adrian in a decision last Friday after a three-day hearing that was held last November. The following, that was following a complaint that was filed against him. In the ruling, the commission found that Adrian, Judge Adrian, had abused his position of power to indulge his own sense of justice while circumventing the law when he decided Drew Clinton, a then 18-year-old man who was convicted of raping a 16-year-old girl at a graduation party, had served enough time in prison while awaiting his sentencing hearing. Now, Judge Adrian had originally convicted Clinton of the sexual assault charge and was supposed to hand down a four-year prison sentence. But the judge's decision to throw out the rape conviction while reprimanding the victim and her family, needless to say, got some criticism. Now, according to the court transcription, Adrian said he was throwing out Clinton's rape conviction because the time he served in jail while awaiting his sentence, less than five months, I might add, was plenty of punishment already. The judge then reprimanded the victim and her family saying, this is what happens whenever parents allow teenagers to drink alcohol and to swim in their undergarments. Um, so once again, we went and got the original document because let's face it, judges being removed for not following the law doesn't happen very often. It should happen, frankly, a little more often. But in this particular case, there was a little bit of retaliation and a little bit of untruthfulness by the judge. So like I said, there was this young man, Mr. Clinton. He was charged with the sexual assault. It was a trial to the court. The defense thought they were going to have an advantage to that. Needless to say, the judge, Judge Adrian, found Mr. Clinton guilty. Then when he apparently realized and he kind of claimed that he, oh, I didn't realize he was going to have to get that sentence. If he would, I would have uh, sua sponte on my own either found him not guilty or found him guilty of a lesser charge, but he didn't do that. The commission didn't believe it at all. And I think there's some interesting language in here that is worth noting, not only to this judge, but to all judges everywhere. It says, the cornerstone of the judicial disciplinary system, not only in Illinois, but as ever, is to maintain public confidence in the judiciary ensuring the integrity of the judicial system and to uh, protect the administration of justice from reproach. And here, this commission found that the judge's misconduct spanned nearly two years beginning back on January 3, 2022, when he reversed his guilty finding, not because the state failed in its burden of proof, but to circumvent the mandatory sentencing law he was required to follow. Shortly thereafter, the respondent retaliated against the district attorney by having him removed from the courtroom. And in April of 2022, the judge testified falsely before the board. In November of 2023, at the hearing before this commission, respondent gave false testimony under oath a second time. The nature and the extent of this misconduct is egregious, not good for the judge. And they go on to say that the judge's duty of not to follow the law and then to basically retaliate and then lie about it uh, has seriously damaged the integrity of the judiciary and that he intentionally subverted the law when he then lied about it under oath to serve his own interest. He also retaliated against another officer of the court because he was facing the backlash of his own misconduct. 
and he misused his position as a judge in a criminal case to satisfy his own sense of justice by refusing to faithfully apply the law. So I think that's the interesting thing. How many times have we said it here on Crime Talk, right? What are judges supposed to do? Call balls and strikes. That's it. You don't get to decide what's a good law and what's a bad law. You have to follow the law as a judge. And this judge, once he realized, ooh, I don't don't like that law, he ignored it. He can't do it. And although he thought he was doing justice for this young man, he thought it was an appropriate sentence, he didn't do justice to the family who on the other side thought, well, the prosecution had proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. You found so, judge. And then just to throw it out with no explanation, completely wrong. And that's what judges are to do, follow the law, whether they like it or not. They're an umpire. They're not a participant in the player. If they want to go be a participant in the, you know, in the process, then you leave the judiciary. You go into private practice. You go and argue those positions. And that's where you see a lot of times where judges get on a bench and they want to do what they think is right instead of what the law requires. The remedy is not to have the judge fix it. The remedy is you have to have the legislature or in federal cases, the Congress change the law. That's what you have to do. So interesting little case there. Judge Adrian, poof, out of there. What can you do? Follow the law, judge. Judges, all judges, follow the law. I once saw the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who said that if you are a judge and you always get the result that you want as a judge, you're not a good judge because you're not following the law. If you're going based upon the law, there's going to be decisions that you don't like. But if you do it based upon what you think is right and what is justice, then, well, you're not doing your job. Hopefully, something to think about. Next, that Colorado mom on the run had a court hearing. Yes, the mother accused of shooting her nine-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son here in Colorado before she fled to the United Kingdom appeared in a court in England. Kimberly Singler is wanted here in uh, Colorado, specifically Colorado Springs, for the alleged killing of her daughter, Eliana, who's nine, and her son, Aiden, seven, back on December 19th. Singler then fled to the United Kingdom and was arrested in Kensington, West London, by the National Crime Agency on December 30th. Well, she appeared at the Westminster Magistrate today via court video link, and um, they reset the hearing. Two of her children, like I said, were found uh, dead in the apartment. An autopsy uh, recently revealed that they passed away as a result of a gunshot wound. That can do that. Anyway, uh, Singler and her other daughter, uh, 11, were also injured. Now, the mother had initially cooperated with police, but then vanished, triggering, obviously, a concern that maybe she had some involvement in this case. And uh, when uh, she was arrested, officers... um, Uh, arrested her for offenses, including two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. She is accused of two counts of a uh, class two felony child abuse, one class three felony of child abuse, and one assault. When she first appeared in court back in January, she did not consent to her extradition to the United States. Singler was then remanded into custody ahead of a uh, a preliminary hearing, and another preliminary hearing in England has now been set for March 25th. She's coming back. Just get used to it. Just get used to it. All right. Next story we have comes from Wyoming, Michigan. That's right. Two Michigan parents were charged with child abuse Friday 
in what the uh, prosecutor alleges was torture that went on for over a decade. So Chris and Alan Jones were both arraigned on three counts of torture and three counts of child abuse. The judge has not given them a bond. The couple's three adopted children endured uh, the alleged torture and abuse that goes back as far as 2013, according to the affidavit for arrest warrants. The children were forced to sleep in the garage in an all-weather elements. Um, Chris would remove the carpet from the stairs so the children had to sleep on concrete. And when the children were fed, documents said they were placed in a dog collar, forced to eat dog food and milk and oatmeal with hot sauce. Now, one of the children uh, was uh, caught eating food from the trash at the school because she wasn't being fed at home, according to uh, the affidavit. The kids were pushed down the stairs, held down, punched, and even choked, according to the affidavit. And very often in uh, any type of child abuse or other forms of abuse, someone close to them is, in fact, the parent is a caregiver, is a relative, according to the uh, prosecutor. Not untrue. And when they acted out, the parents allegedly made them run miles uh, for punishment. Uh, Apparently, the neighbor would notice that... um, the kids were running around the house quite frequently and maybe thought that was strange. So since this was in Michigan and we know if you know something's going on, like remember the Jennifer Crumley case, I wonder if that neighbor who saw something that didn't say something should be charged. Oh, the slippery little slope that we go down, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody likes it until it affects them. Anyway, torture is a rare charge. According to the district attorney, they uh, don't see any more than about five years in this jurisdiction in Michigan. And it requires a specific intent to cause an extreme physical abuse or mental harm so that that specific intent factor is very high and difficult to prove. Basically, much harder than saying something bad took place. Guess what? Several Child Protective Services complaints uh, allege There were signs of physical and mental abuse over the years. Coincidentally, it doesn't look like anyone took the kids out of the home. I wonder if they should charge those people too. Uh, Chris allegedly uh, did not cooperate with the Child Protective Service and did not allow the workers to speak with the kids. Well, they will now. But you see where I'm coming from, ladies and gentlemen? What do you know? I mean, people made allegations. You didn't follow up on it. Maybe you should have dug a little deeper. Oh my gosh, this abuse continued. Charge all the social workers. Charge the neighbor. Hey, it takes a village, right? I know some people disagree with me on that, but be careful what you wish for. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Connor, Connor Litka. Um, He walked into a Porsche dealership in Louisville, Kentucky, and sought the purchase of a car, which is nice. Who wouldn't want to get a car from the Porsche dealership? The problem is he had a $78 million check they would have liked to use to pay for the car. Well, um, when uh, our dumb criminal was uh, told by employees at the uh, Blue Grass Motorsports that they were not going to sell him the vehicle, Mr. Litka allegedly walked into the parts department and started looking for the keys. Obviously, he's delusional. The keys are not in the parts department. They're in the sales office. Anyway, Mr. Litka ignored the request to leave the dealership until he got his vehicle. Um, fearing that something was going to happen. They called the police, who wouldn't, and he was arrested after he refused to leave the Porsche dealership. Now, um, he's been charged with criminal trespass and disorderly conduct, which are misdemeanors, thank goodness for Mr. Litka, as it could affect his budding young career. 
because he's a business student in Indiana. Mr. Litka is scheduled to appear in court um, tomorrow. And uh, guess what? The day before, he tried to pass a $78 million check to purchase a Land Rover from the local Land Rover dealership for $12 million on that particular day. Like I said, Mr. Litka lives in Bloomington, Indiana, which is about 100 miles from Louisville. And uh, he is a business student at the uh, University of Indiana. So... Maybe he didn't catch that whole economics uh, 101, but you can't just go writing checks. And uh, in today's world, let's face it, no one's going to let you buy a Porsche for $150,000 and then give you the change back for the $78 million. just doesn't work that way. Mr. Litka, you are a dumb criminal of the day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for hanging with us. I know we weren't here last week, so hopefully you enjoyed our conversation today. We'll see you next time, and thanks for watching. And remember, the Constitution matters. Mm -hmm.